0: It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here and we have a lot to talk about, including the missing coffee episode, why third-party cookies are bad, or are they, and a brand new product from Ubico. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust.
0: This, this is TWIT. Is twit. Audio Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com android. Video Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 342, recorded February 29th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 138. It's time for S- Security Now. You forgot where you were for a moment. <laughs> no, no, I just wanted to give it a long S- ah. Security Now. <laughs> there, <laughs> there he is, Mr. Third Party Cookie, Steve Gibson. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Boy, did we stir a hornet's nest? Oh, nice. I bet
0: we did. We're doing q and A, Q&A, so I know I'm going to hear it. I've been nope, hearing it I, all week.
1: I know, I know. Uh,
0: but in, and I think rightly so. I, I just think it's a good conversation to have,
1: and so yes. we will have it. Yes. Yeah. This was the wrong place to try to tell people that uh, tracking wasn't a bad thing. That well, we we
0: we didn't go over. We've been well. inveighing against their. You have been inveighing against third-party cookies since uh, you know as long as they've been such a concept. And uh, I still have the question what's so bad about third party cookies but I'm yeah. sure you'll you will you will explain in the q
1: and Well I actually have an innovation of my own that I've never seen anywhere and I'll share it uh, in the miscellaneous section at the top of our show today just something that like solves the problem and I don't know why no one has done it well, but there you you know, go. maybe maybe by by speaking it there'll be somebody with some influence listening. I know that we do have influencers listening, so that that would be great.
0: From your mouth to the influencers' ears. <laughs> but uh, and we also have Q and A. I don't. I only have one little um, commercial. I can do at any time. So why don't you just get into the uh, the news of the week? How about that?
1: Okay, I like that idea. So. Um, uh, if I can find it. Where it go? <laughs> I have it. You want me? To-
0: <laughs> I have all your notes. Okay. If you'd uh, like me, here I, I am can just read We're them w- to waiting you. for
1: you to get ready, and I'm not.
0: <laughs> Let's start um, with the uh, DNT.
1: Do uh, not track. Okay.
0: Actually, that was the biggest news that I was really pleased that came out of um, uh, the week's news was uh, the Obama administration
1: um, threw its support behind do not track. Well, and more importantly, I think Google did. Yeah. So yeah. Google uh, – so we now have Firefox, IE, Safari, and Opera, and Google has announced they're going to support it too.
0: And now, they have now some governmental clout behind it. So using it will have some meaning, which is equally
1: well, important. Well, yes. Um, you know, everyone says, oh, well, but all that does is it just puts, you know, the DNT header in right. your query. And it's like, yes, and, you know, but again, let's not make the – what is it uh, – Let's not make perfect the enemy of the good. No, the, the good. good.
0: Yeah, and, yes, exactly. And you know,
1: and this is good. This, this is, is good. you know yeah. f- to allow, to allow people to express their desire, that's where we start and we'll certainly be moving forward from there. Um it I mean it, it's the creep factor, I think. It's the sense that that companies will exploit if they can and also, I think it's people, you know, you're in a position, Leo, of really understanding this very well. So you're like, well, yeah, but I, you know, you understand the implications. A lot of people who don't understand it don't know the limitations of what could be done. And so they're a little more frightened by it. So, well, and now here's a question Will do not
0: track be turned on by default on all these browsers or will we have really to know could- to turn it on?
1: Really good question. Um, I bet not. My guess is it'll be there, but not enabled. So now we'll have Uh, to educate people, Educate people. Yep. I have the technology on my site, which I implemented back when I was doing the cookie project. Because, and and the technology, it sounds trivial because lots of people do it, but they all do it client side. Mine was a server side include of a little banner to alert visitors of things and its general purpose. And the idea would be if somebody was poking around my site and I noticed that they had third party cookies enabled, I'd just give them a little notice and say, oh, by the way, you've got third party cookies enabled. And if you don't know what that is, click and I'll tell you all about it. You and did something was, like this before, I thought. Oh, if I had it for years, I just yeah. haven't finished the darn oh, okay. So it's all my <laughs> short list. But you know, I tend to get distracted by you know portable dog killers and ridiculous other projects. So, um, so yes. So as you said, the administration has has is stepping up the issue of privacy. And what's interesting also is that the big online advertising group have said they're going to comply. So. You now they have this,
0: to, right? It's a public this, relations thing, isn't
1: it? it yeah, yeah, it's having some traction.
0: So I do, but, I do fear for the future of the free and open and uh, un-paywalled uh, internet. At some point, I mean, we got to balance but, privacy and uh, and monetization, I guess. Yeah,
1: and you know, I did. I, I I would love to have some numbers, or for someone to provide us with some numbers that that w- w- was definitive about. To what degree it really matters who we are. Because remember, the when, when you go to a site that's serving ads, that site gets revenue from advertisers by displaying the advertiser's ads. And extra revenue, of course, if you click on those ads... But still, not just necessarily.
0: By the way, we don't charge for clicks. For instance.
1: Oh no, kid. No, so so okay. So, so and we impressive. get to charge
0: more if we could tell advertisers more demographics uh, of the people who are visiting. Or and I think this is built into the price. The advertisers themselves know because that's really what this is all about: is double click. Let's say knowing who's seeing
1: the ad and valuing that more. You see what I'm saying? And say yes, but we don't have any. We don't, we don't have any quantification of that. Right. Because my point is that third-party cookies are the way that additional information is aggregated, but not the way the the site presenting the ad is identified. That's the referrer header that goes off to along with with, with the request for the ad. So double click, for example, knows that somebody went to, to twit.tv and is looking at one of their ads. Now, the question is, do you actually get more money if they know something about the user? Now, remember that they're they're putting ads on your site so they know about, in general, your site's demographics. Very general.
0: Very general. Right. In fact, we don't collect that information, so they don't.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, you don't. But, you know, that's of course. But
0: if they are keeping third party cookies, they might. Right. So that's the problem is we don't know as a seller of ads, we don't know uh, how that price is determined. I mean there's a – you know, we can set our own price, but whether it's worth that is not – only DoubleClick knows or whoever sells buys the ads. Uh, no, we actually don't use uh, DoubleClick or anything like that. We don't use – we don't do that
1: kind of thing. Yeah, I did – I saw something years ago that said this – con the whole concept of profiling had really not succeeded – Although I think that's obsolete because I think Google has has raised the bar because, you know, when you put in a search query right then and there, you're saying this is what I care about. This is what I'm searching for. Well, that's that's why Google is Google. You know, I mean, the the size and the success they are is that their response page is able right there to show you ads that you essentially just asked for. Right. So it's not profiling you. It's. Looking at your query and saying, oh, we've got some advertisers who's, you know, who are paying for the use of the keywords that this person is just searching on. That kind of thing, that absolutely makes sense to me. You know, so,
0: all I could, all I could uh, liken it to is ad block. Uh, there are lots of uh, mm, our listeners block right. And this is very ads. different. Yes. No, I understand, ad but blocking. I'm just. But let me let me explain what I'm thinking. The the analogy okay. here, um, such a small number use ad block that we can ignore it. We can safely ignore it. Um, but obviously, the person who uses ad block, and many people feel it's their right to use ad block, um, will not see ads and is not in fact contributing to. If ban- by the way, we, and one of the reasons we monetize by reading you ads in the middle of the show is because we completely uh, avoid this issue. You could skip it, but it's, you know, it's not automatic. But let's say we were making money, as we planned to, by the way. We, 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 uh, one of the ways we, I told you we're developing the Tech Guy site, it's a $100,000 project that is paid for by the banner ads that will be on the Tech Guy site. So this is a relevant issue to me. So if you use AdBlock, you're not paying your fair share by, of attention. But fortunately, very few people use it, so it's de minimis. If the default on the Internet suddenly became AdBlock... We would have to do business very differently. Yes, everything would change. Everything would change. So that's why the choice of defaults on third-party cookies might well be relevant. Again,
1: we don't have the information to know, and we should get that information. Would be nice to know. I know that Mark Thompson has a good friend um, whose site is Snap Files, a really nice, high-quality file downloading site, and it's entirely run by it's entirely financed by ads the guy is making himself a fantastic living and because the site has done so well it's the only thing he has to do and so he's able to spend a, a disproportionate amount of time look actually looking at the freeware that he's posting himself evaluating it, writing things up. I mean, essentially it it absolutely closes the loop. The fact that he's displaying ads, advertisers are paying him for that display, the site is popular enough and, and so forth. I mean it 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 really that it, it really does work. And so the question is does it matter if the people who go there and see the ads are also being tracked? And And you know if let's say let's say he
0: makes more money if they are than he doesn't. Who has the right to say how much money he makes? You know, I think that there's this perception about that. Oh well, he shouldn't have to make that. You know, he shouldn't need that much money. He should just Mm -hmm. make what he can make without tracking. Um, But that's not this. You know, that's not a decision for. That's a that's a
1: conversation we all need to have. Yeah. See, my my uh, coming. I always hail from a technical standpoint, and tracking is a mistake. This was this is a glitch. This was never supposed to happen. This is not why cookies were created to allow advertisers to track people. It because the idea of a cookie is for you to have a relationship with the site you're visiting and allow it to maintain some state with you because you otherwise have a, a stateless relationship, and it was when this concept of a third party share you know hosting content on the first party site when that happened the advertisers realized oh hey uh th- we're having cookies happening here and then when though that central repository of ads began being hosted on all these sites on the internet then that glued people together it was it was that DoubleClick was a large advertiser who was providing third-party content across the internet. Suddenly, they were getting back cookies from people that they'd given them to on other sites in the future. And so that's where this whole concept of profiling users came from. I mean, this is, this is not what cookies were for. And that's, of course, why browsers have allowed you to turn them off. Is this like it was recognized? Wait a minute. There, there's a privacy concern here. So, so. Um,
0: no, I don't think there's a privacy concern at all, but OK. <laughs> I, th- I think that well, that's, that's kind of just the default. Okay. Hey, I, it's I a privacy argue, issue.
1: I would argue that if someone goes to a Philharmonic website to, because they're planning to be in New York the next week and browses around but clicks nothing, then gets a phone call From the Philharmonic's telemarketing company saying, hi, we noticed you were just over on the website and wanted to make sure you knew of some special offers we have coming up. I would consider that a privacy
0: concern. It is, but the concern is not from cookies. That didn't happen because of cookies. That happened because he gave his phone number to somebody who then revealed it to a marketing company. They were able to perhaps get that phone number from somebody other than the Philharmonic site. That's not clear. But the privacy issue is not the cookie. The privacy issue is somebody
1: gave that phone number to the marketer, right? Um, the the privacy issue is aggregation. This is I have, yeah. But I, but, it, but he gave his in, phone at some point.
0: He gave his phone number to somebody. Yes, somebody he trusted. He didn't. He didn't give it. He didn't. He he somehow they didn't get the phone number out of thin air. They got it from somebody he gave it to. Is that not right? Correct. Pro- on some other website somewhere. That's
1: the privacy violation. No okay, one, Not the cookies. So, so if he had third-party cookies disabled, they would not have been able to call him. That's my point. Well, they wouldn't have known, like, known
0: he went to the Philharmonic site, perhaps, unless it was the Philharmonic that gave him the phone number, that he gave the phone number to the Philharmonic. The, the, the issue is that he gave the phone number to somebody other than the Philharmonic, visits the Philharmonic site, and then as the Philharmonic's able to call him because that other site gave his, the phone number <laughs> up. That's the, yes. that's the privacy flaw. Otherwise, the only thing the Philharmonic, you know, that, that's passed around is he was at this site.
1: People don't want to be tracked on the Internet. Well, I think they that don't. they have to they rethink to be that
0: tracked. because they also want a lot of free stuff on the Internet. And I think that there's a real risk here that what – I understand what, what they're, they're saying and I understand what you're saying. But I also think you need to understand that you're – I think people don't make the connection to all the free stuff they're getting on the Internet. And advertising. It's, that's how it's paid for. You, and you, right. So you undercut and compl- this. You undercut this. 100- you are
1: risking undercutting all the free content you get on the Internet. You get a ton of it. Yeah. Most of it. We don't know that, though. I 100% agree with you about ad blocking. Ad blocking says I want the page scraped of ads and see the content. And, and I completely agree with you there. I, but that's completely different from tracking from from knowing who i am on two different sites that i visit and and having a third party be able to glue that together and establish a profile
0: well again the, to me it seems like the profile only contains information that these thir- these other sites give up and if they're giving up your personal information your quarrel
1: is with those sites yes um Certainly that's not good but yeah but but that
0: gets <laughs> So added somebody to a- gave I gave my phone number to somebody and somebody gave that phone number to DoubleClick and then DoubleClick put the two together but but I really need to be mad at the person who gave my
1: at my phone number to DoubleClick yes That's one part Leo Part 2 is if I'm somewhere else I don't want to be known as that same person right. who lost his his information somewhere else. Well, you you, and may, it's you cross, may or may not. It's, and I it's, it's agree the cross-domain tracking. I agree that
0: you should have the chance to, to turn that off. I'm not saying you shouldn't have the option to turn that off. However, I'm <laughs> saying if it becomes a widespread option on the Internet, do not track. It becomes the, the op, you know, default option on the Internet. You may, there may be surprising consequences.
1: You know, you'll, you'll see a lot it, more it, paywalls. Let me put it that I way. Th- I think it's a little bit like what we experienced when I first discovered the first spyware and coined that term. Um, and that is users were furious that this had been done without their knowledge and consent. And this is consent-free tracking. No one asks people if, if they want to consent to this. And so, you know, that's certainly a factor here, too.
0: Well, you go you on know? the Internet. Do you, not believe, <laughs> do you not believe that you are tracked on the Internet? Do you not think that every site you go to keeps track of your IP address? Do you not think your IP address is, uh, and all the sites visited are preserved by the uh, Internet service provider? I mean, you, you're going on the Internet. Of course you're being tracked.
1: Okay, and you're
0: using free services. I mean, I I I agree. I completely understand, and I agree that you should have the right to turn this off. But I think that, and I think you have the right to use ad blockers. By the way, I don't think ad blockers should be banned. Um, but I just think that there that you also should consider the fact that some of this is paying for the stuff that you enjoy so much on the
1: internet, including my content. And it would and I don't, be don't nice think people we, want me to start charging you for content. It would be nice if we knew whether tracking was was whether tracking mattered there or and or to what degree we just we just don't
0: know well it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't give my phone number to double click It does matter a lot if they aggregate a lot you know my credit cards and phone numbers, and then that information is shared all around that of course what, matters but i to me what, that to me is the flaw, not the tracking what pe- cookie
1: what people it's it's the gluing it together what what people in the industry have said. That is that we would be stunned if we knew how much data was being collected about us. And so it's like... All okay, the well, time by walking around.
0: Yes, I agree. Not just the internet. We know this. That's how marketers work. That's how Kmart... Or, I'm sorry, Target. You read that Target article. That's how they of work. And all the little supermarket, the yeah, supermarket... that's how they work. It's, like, it's yeah. like saying, I want a supermarket card. By the way, Dvorak does this. I want a supermarket card... Uh, I want the deals of the supermarket card. Just don't track me. It's a little bit more of an explicit relationship. It's obvious when you, I think, when you buy a supermarket card, that you're giving them all that information, including your phone number, everything you put on that form, matched to the products. That information is being shared with all the companies. I think you know that, right? But you get, but yes. you do it because you get a deal on the food. So that's a much more explicit transaction. I, I just think we need to understand. It's these implicit transactions that are happening on the web. That there is a reason for them. It's not people trying to see what's your, what, what, kind of what you are up to.
1: It's, I mean, it really isn't. They don't care what you are up to. It's well, the theory, the theory is that if you are profiled, then the advertisers can deliver more relevant ads, and that therefore the impressions are more valuable to you and to the advertisers. Right. Right, that's right.
0: We don't disagree on this, and I and I believe it or not, it doesn't. I'm just. I think people don't completely. There's this knee jerk reaction. Oh, cookies are bad. There's there. You have to admit. There's this knee jerk reaction. Cookies are bad, and third party cookies are worse. And uh, I know lots of people delete their cookies routinely, and I think it's because they don't really understand what's going on
1: here. Well, and, I mean, Firefox has an option of right. flush third-party cookies. Every, every browser on, does. Every browser, termination. every browser does. Anyway, it's, I don't
0: care. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's much longer of a conversation about this than it deserved. I
1: apologize. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's another controversy, and that is that Google, Microsoft, and Netflix are attempting to add DRM to HTML5. And uh, the Mozilla people who would be, you know, who are looking at this evolving HTML5 spec are, have been quoted as saying they think this is unethical. And um, uh, Ars Technica reported on it and the W3C has uh, a, uh, a spec and the, the, the working notes. And, and one of the things that they have asked is, can an open source browser do DRM? To which the Netflix representative said, well, um, you know, it's been the case in the past that open source software has included closed source modules and or maybe some hardware somewhere would actually be doing the decryption. You know, the... I, I was curious about where this thing went, and you know, because I mean, we know it's impossible. I mean, we we absolutely know you cannot actually protect content. But what I mean, and and Netflix's Netflix, yeah, I said that right. Netflix's position is they would like you know their content providers require them to protect the content they're they're offering, and so traditionally they've used third-party tools or Flash or Silverlight or something that that did offer that kind of protection. Well, as we're seeing Flash ebbing from the net and HTML5 is now becoming the solution, that and JavaScript, to, to glue together the capabilities, they're saying, hey, we'd like to be able to deliver protected content just to the browser without needing Third-party plug-in in order to provide that protection. So, so you know, standing back from it, as we often said, if you're going to display unencrypted video on a person's screen, it can't be protected. I mean, the the technology doesn't exist. It has to be decrypted in order to show it. I'm, I'm, I have less of a knee-jerk to this after really looking into it than than the Mozilla people do, um, and I think they're sort of taking the ivory tower position because, in fact, what Microsoft, Google, and Netflix are asking for are just some hooks. They're asking to expand the, 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 the media handling API, the media handling features, to provide the hooks that would allow JavaScript to request decryption keys and provide those to a decryption module... And those things are just sort of black boxes not defined. They just want to get that into the spec. And and so, you know, my sense is, well, yeah, I can understand this. It would be, I mean, as a, as a person who sort of really doesn't like having big bloated plugins added to my browser and loves the idea of things being kept simple. I like the idea of, you know, if I want to watch something from Netflix that I don't have to have a plug-in in order to do it to provide the drm as an add-on but the browser can be enhanced with that you know at some point in the future so what do you think <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, yeah i mean look at you're
0: not gonna get movies without drm so
1: right good luck right <laughs> one right. of the reasons
0: netflix wasn't on android for a long time is because they didn't feel they could protect the movies right i mean i don't uh, you know we could argue about whether DRM is necessary. I don't think it is, but yeah. it's just a fact of the matter. <laughs> if
1: you don't support DRM, you're not going to get movies, right? So, big news from the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, the, uh, a, I mean, and and happy news for us. Um, I want to read the just the beginning of the of the appeal and and then the decision because it actually refers to TrueCrypt, and I think. Exactly what was said, and how it was said, it will be a, of great interest to our listeners. Um, so the um, the document reads: This is an appeal of a judgment of civil contempt on April seventh, twenty eleven. John Doe was served with a subpoena, Deuces ticum, some te- some legal term, a subpoena requiring him to appear before a Northern District of Florida grand jury and produce the unencrypted contents located on the hard drives of Doe's laptop computers and five external hard drives. Doe informed the United States attorney for the Northern District of Florida that when he appeared before the grand jury, he would invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and refuse to comply with a subpoena. Because the government considered Doe's compliance with the subpoena necessary to the public interest, the attorney general exercised his authority under Title 18 USC, authorized the U.S. attorney to apply to the district court pursuant to Title 18 for an order that would grant Doe immunity and require him to respond to the subpoena. On April 19th, the U.S. attorney and Doe appeared before the district court. The U.S. attorney requested that the court grant Doe immunity limited to, quote, the use of Doe's act of production of the encrypted contents of the hard drive. That is, Doe's immunity would not extend to the government's derivative use of contents of the drives as evidence against him in a criminal prosecution. So what, basically what they were saying was we will give you immunity for – unencrypting your drive, but then whatever we do with the contents is still ours to pursue independently. So again, he refuses. So this ends up being appealed, and the 11th Circuit just found that the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination does protect us against being forced to decrypt hard drive contents. They wrote, we hold... That the act of Doe's decryption and production of the contents of the hard drives would sufficiently implicate the Fifth Amendment privilege. We reach this holding by concluding that, one, Doe's decryption and production of the contents of the drives would be testimonial, not merely a physical act. And two, the explicit and implicit factual communications associated with the decryption and production are not foregone conclusions. First, the decryption and production of the hard drives would require the use of the contents of, J- of Doe's mind. This is what you and I were talking about before, a couple of weeks ago, when, when this was still circulating around. We weren't sure how it was going to come out, Leo. So it would use the contents of Doe's mind and could not be fairly characterized as a physical act that would be non-testimonial in nature. We conclude that the decryption and production would be tantamount to testimony by Doe of his knowledge of the existence and location of potentially incriminating files, of his possession, control, and access to the encrypted portions of the drives, and of his capability to decrypt the files. We're persuaded by the government's we, we, I'm sorry, we are unpersuaded by the government's derivation of the key-slash-combination-lock analogy in arguing that Doe's production of the unencrypted files would be nothing more than a physical, non-testimonial transfer, where, you know, it's, where in the past, it's been argued that the government could have the combination to a safe, for example, or, or, or the keys. The government attempts to avoid the analogy by arguing that it does not seek the combination or the key, but rather the contents. This argument badly misses the mark. And then they quote some case law. um, And they finally talk about when they talk about TrueCrypt. They saw to be fair, the government has shown that the combined storage space of the drives could contain files that number well into the millions. And the government has also shown that the drives are encrypted. The government has not shown, however, that the drives actually contain any files, nor has it shown which of the estimated 20 million files the drives are capable of holding may prove useful. The government has emphasized at every stage of the proceedings, in this case, that the forensic analysis showed random characters. But random characters are not files because the TrueCrypt program displays random characters. If there are files and if there is empty space, we simply do not know what, if anything, was hidden based on the facts before us. It is not enough for the government to argue that the encrypted drives are capable of storing vast amounts of data, some of which may be incriminating. In short, the government physically possesses the media devices, but it does not know what, if anything, is held on the encrypted drives. Along the same lines, we are not persuaded by the suggestion that simply because the drives were encrypted necessarily means that Doe was trying to hide something. Just as a vault is capable of storing mountains of incriminating documents, that alone does not mean that it does contain incriminating documents or anything at all. So that's the upshot of that, which, you know, is good news for people who, who want the right to uh, keep their stuff private and, and, and have the Fifth Amendment protect them from self-incrimination.
0: Yeah, we covered a little bit of this on This Week in Law, if people want to know more. It's very interesting. Oh, cool. And and Twit as well, yeah. So,
1: Yubico yesterday released a new form factor for their famous YubiKey, and um, it's very cool. They call it the Nano, and it is just, it's essentially just the USB plug portion that that would go into and disappear into the USB slot, with a a little bit of an arced metal contact and a light that can be seen. So, it's, the idea is that this is it's sort of like a semi-portable trusted platform module. We've where, talked about this. You're
0: gonna you're gonna lose this though.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, it's the to idea- be
0: put in something else, right?
1: Well, yeah, it's to be put into. The idea would be everyone's running around with laptops now. This would be a exactly. Ah. You you stick it in, and it just lives in the USB slot. And people who have seen this have said, "Well, wait a minute, you know, that's not really multi-factor because it's permanent. You know, it's it's (laughs) permanent, but it authenticates the device, which is really nice. I mean, for example, I, I came up with that." that very fancy system using cookies, um, uh, secure HTTPS flagged cookies um, in order to allow my employees to access the GRC data when they were roaming. And the idea was they had to, they had to have their laptop at home with an, with their home IP that GRC recognizes. Then when they, use the laptop to open a, a protected page on GRC, they're, they're, it, it says, hey, you don't have a permission cookie. Do you want to get one? So then I, then I give them this permission cookie, which then identifies the laptop. Then when they're subsequently roaming and it sees a query come in carrying that, that encrypted protected cookie, then... Along with them identifying themselves using the perfect paper, the perfect paper password system, and in fact, I think maybe that's why I designed the perfect paper pass- password system was for this purpose, because I wanted to something like a one-time token, and I also wanted th- their access to be locked to their laptop so that they wouldn't be tempted to, you know, just log in from some friend's computer because there's just I don't I'm not convinced there's a safe way to do that. So I wish there was some simple, clean way of authenticating that laptop. And this provides that. You would still have them provide, um, first of all, it'll identify itself. And you, of course, touch the contact in order to send a one-time password for for further identification. And then, you know, for multi-factor, you'd still prompt, you know, pop up and prompt them for a password. And only if all of that works as a whole, do you then say, oh, welcome, and and give them what they want. The other cool thing is that this has, the, this is the version 2.2 of the YubiKey technology, which has added um, a full uh, FIPS standard challenge response mode, which is to say... It can have a secret, which it never reveals, and rather than merely sending out a one-time password every time you touch it, it can be it can be challenged th- purely through software and generate a response. So that, for example, you can use it to authenticate a submission. You 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 put together a bunch of information and you, you press the submit button, well, that information is, is run through the YubiKey. It generates essentially a signature, which it sends off with the uh, information, and, and that's able to authenticate what was submitted. Um, and in fact, they, the well-known free and open source password safe technology now supports the YubiKey, not just this little guy, but all of, of the version 2.2 YubiKeys, using the, this challenge-response system. So you, you you stick your YubiKey in your computer, and it now identifies itself while you're using Password Safe, uh, which is a you know it's over on SourceForge and and a uh, multi, um, nice multi-platform solution. Um, and Password Safe is, is able essentially to ping. The Yuba key whenever it wants to, and as many times as it wants to, to verify that it's there and that you know you are who you you are saying you are, and then you you're also able to configure it so that you have to touch the little Yuba key contact if you want to uh, set it up that way. So anyway, I'm really happy they're they're moving forward on um, this authentication technology, and I I think the idea of being able to, you know, sneak one of these, just sort of slip it into a USB socket as to provide some authentication for the laptop itself uh, is is cool. And I might still use a YubiKey in a different USB socket in order to, you know, to authenticate me separate from that. So, very neat. And, boy, I, I hes- <laughs> hesitate to open this up again, but I did want to say... That one of the solutions that that I had always had and, and been thinking about for third party cookies is just to associate the third party cookie with the first party site. I had this in my notes, so I wanted to mention it. It's, and that is it's
0: true. If Google hadn't used uh, DoubleClick as the originating site, but had instead used Google as the originating site, none of this would have happened. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it's that second originating site that confuses the issue.
1: Yes. And and my thought was, you know, people have said, well, if you disable third party cookies, some add ins on sites no longer work. And that is the case. There are there are, you know, because like, you know, uh, uh, Facebook apps are running on the on your Facebook page. They're inherently a third party app and they want and they need. A cookie in order to provide the same, not tracking, but the same sort of stateful connection to the user that the first party cookie provides to websites. Because I'm, I'm certainly with you, Leo, cookies are not themselves inherently evil. They're, you know, nothing works if you disable all cookies. I mean, almost nothing well, anymore. The only thing we disagree on
0: is how dangerous third party cookies are.
1: Correct. Correct. And yes. And so one thought is, that if the thir- if third party cookies were tethered to the first party site where you were when you got them then everybody's happy Th- then then you you're able to accept third party cookies um third parties are able to uh, to associate with you yet they're not able to track you you're to follow you as you go to other sites on the internet when you go to those sites you'd because your cookies would be in a jar, essentially, and I coined the term cookie jars for this, um, then that other site would provide third-party content and you'd have a third-party cookie for it. But it would not be the same third-party cookie because you were on a different first-party site. And that means that third parties are able to uh, to associate with you. No, no apps break, yet no one needs to be worried about no one needs to worry about being tracked from site to site. So sort of it's a nice compromise. Um, I also wanted to say, as I'm going through the mailbag, so many people said, hey, Steve, you can solve the perfect posthumous passwords problem, which we've talked about, you know, what happens if I die? How can I give, you know, access to people I care about? Um, I was really impressed with how many people said LastPass, just use LastPass's one-time password. You know, it'll generate some. You, you put them somewhere safe. And if, any, if, if anyone else ever needs to access your LastPass logins, uh, they're able to do that using your, your first-party cookie. So I just wanted to, or, or using your one-time password. So I just wanted to shout out to everyone who also thought of that. And uh, a very brief Honor Harrington update. Um, I'm, I thought I was off the hook when I finished book eleven, Leo, um, <laughs> now
0: um, now tell me the truth. Did you breathe a sigh of relief, or were you well, sad? Well, were you say off the hook.
1: That sounds like you were glad. Oh my God! Eleven books. Well, I'm I'm um. It that's quite a commitment. <laughs> yeah, it it really did bog down, sort of like two thirds of the way through this first eleven. It got. I mean, he's built a huge universe. You know, you learn all this about all these people. David Weber, the author, you know, clearly is interested in politics. It's, so it's very much, you know, uh, star system, politics and, and bad actors and good actors. And I mean, it's so it's like, OK. And I mean, I was enjoying the battles that just seemed very clean and interesting and fun. And, and there weren't a lot of battles there around two-thirds through the series. However, I have to say that book 12 has started off and I'm immediately gripped by it and not a shot has been fired. So mm. I, I realize that, you know, I, I've, you know I, I've bought this, this, this series hook, line, and sinker. It's a major investment, as you say, in time. Um, I'm ready to be done but I'm I'm now I have to find out what's going to happen. Because, now you know because... why I didn't start. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ah uh, wow. yes. So, so how many?
0: How, how many now? Twelve, a dozen. Uh, but, I will. But more I mean, to come,
1: you think? I mean, is this it? Or? Yes. Yes. There's yeah. there's thirteen and fourteen. Thirteen is supposed to be uh, tomorrow. Well, tomorrow's month it's supposed to be in March sometime is number thirteen, and then I think there are a couple more in the arc. And uh, we are going to get movies so people who just don't have any interest can just wait. It's going to be a few years, I'm sure. But you can you, you can see the movie. As
0: long as it's not Angelina Jolie's leg, I don't mind. <laughs>
1: that was quite a leg. Starring as Honor Harrington. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, okay, so uh, Al uh, sent, sent me from the UK an, uh, just a short note saying that reporting his success with Spinrite, which allowed his external hard drive to be imaged. He said, Steve, thanks for the useful podcast that you do with Leo. I really love the show and methodical detail for each topic right down into the ones and zeros of computers and security. This is just my simple Spinrite story. I purchased it so that if anything did go wrong, I'd have it to save me. I've experienced the gut-wrenching feeling of having a drive which is broken And at least with Spinrite nearby, I can feel calm that it can often fix a situation. I like using MS Flight Simulator to fly different planes and have it installed on an external USB iOmega hard drive. After a few minutes of playing, the drive becomes pretty hot. And I know that heat is not too good for a drive. Nevertheless, it seemed to keep working many times, so I thought that probably the heat may not be so bad. I don't know what the max temp is, to run the drives so uh so, so so that they have a long life then one day i thought that i should make a backup image of my, because i have so and, and in case the drive failed i used acronis ti or acronis i guess ti acronis yeah. to do acronis to do this but it told me it could not make the backup because there was a problem with the drive i guess that it might be damaged sectors So I ran spin right over it, and it fixed one sector, and then the drive worked completely perfectly again. I tried using a fan blowing air over the external drive while I play the sim, and it seems to keep it much cooler. Maybe that will give it a longer life. Thanks very much for your great product. So thank you, Al, for your report. (laughs) I just have this vision of him with his computer open and a big fan blowing on it. And I have to say, Leo, in my own experience with hard drives, it's very surprising how much cooler drives will run oh, yeah. with air keep them cool yeah it i mean it's it's not only keep them cool but i mean i've just had just like sometimes i'll put a heat sink on the drive like a heat a heat sink with fins yeah. and then blow the air across the fins the drive almost feels like it's below room temperature i mean like cold 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 to the touch so By all means, I endorse the idea of airflow across drives. That just makes them happy. Well, a well-designed case will do that. It's a little tougher in a laptop, of course. Well, and in in, in many external cases, I think, really don't... Yeah, they're tight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They want to make them small, and if if they're small, you can't get much air through there. And then you know what happens.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. (laughs) Oh, I love blowing up.
1: See, if I didn't have
0: the trike, could I do that without the trike? You, you notice we figured out how to do bouncy lower thirds now. Now the next step is we're really going to drive people crazy. We're going to have little – see how that bounces in and out? Isn't that cool? Next oh, it
1: sort of goes too far sh- and then, then comes You've back. seen
0: that maybe yeah. on TV. Uh, yep. You know, And then next we'll have things moving in the thing. We just uh, – it's just, you know, this is the thing is we have this tri- – let me do an ad for the TriCaster, then we'll get to the questions. We have this TriCaster. Uh, And we use probably one-tenth of its capabilities. It's just amazing. This is the the top-of-the-line TriCaster 850 Extreme. There are a whole bunch of different TriCasters. They all come from uh, the folks at NewTek. So let me put up the uh, URL so you can see I can do this all. I can flow it in and flow it out. Look at that. So if you go to NewTek.com, you can learn more about uh, the TriCaster. That's how – all right, let me turn that off right now. That's (laughs) – I can do this. This is what third-party cookies do for me. No, that's not it. Where's the money one? There's a money shot in here. Um, I'm sorry. Stop playing with it. Uh, If you go to uh, newtech.com, I don't even know what that one was. You can find out more about the TriCaster, variety of different TriCasters for all applications. It's basically everything you need to uh, to know and to do in a, uh, a TV production. All built in, and it's just super, super spectacularly wonderful. And I'm a big fan, and I know you will be too. If you want to do television of any kind, whether, you know, networks use it now, uh, a lot of uh, teams use it, college teams, and of course it gives us the capability of doing all that we want to do, including great lower thirds, green screen, virtual sets, um, the 850 Extreme with ISO quarter technology. From New Tech. We thank them so much for uh, supporting us and making it possible to do this show. And now, money will fall from the ceiling. <laughs> Thanks to third-party cookies. <laughs> I'm rich! Actually, I just just to clarify, we do not use third-party cookies in any of our productions. You can safely go about your business without fear. And if you want to turn off third-party cookies on any of our sites, please be my guest. Are you ready now, my friend, for some questions and answers? Absolutely. We got That's, some good ones. You got the answers, I got the questions starting with Jean Mathieu Bourgeot in Tourare, France, who also loves coffee apparently. In the last episode of Security Matt Now, you mentioned you and Leo had been speaking about coffee for 30 minutes before the show. Has this discussion been recorded anywhere? It would be I would be greatly interested to listen to it. We got to do a coffee podcast. The demand <laughs> I'm sure many other listeners would love to hear it as well. Along those lines, why not do a special episode about the health benefits of drinking coffee, as you did for vitamin D? Over the years, you have been and continue to be a great inspiration to me in my work, and a real plus in continuing my tech educations. Thanks so much, Jean-Mathieu.
1: Thank you, John, for so, listening. So this caught my eye because I was very – I won't say I was surprised, but Leo – um. Well, I asked you before we began recording, was our discussion somewhere captured? Because if if it could just be stuck on YouTube somewhere, I know that it will get a, a chunk of our listenership interested in what it was you and I were talking about. So uh, if, if anyone can find it or if they have it or something, um, that would well, be great. Well,
0: uh, that's a good question. You know, if you go to Justin TV, anytime <laughs> – We don't record a show. Justin TV does. (laughs) That's, by the way, a very handy thing, as it turns out, (laughs) whenever I forget. Now I'm getting – look at that. I'm getting ads. How dare they? So uh, if you go to uh, Justin.TV and search for Twit, um, we have a a, a, – you can watch our live broadcast, obviously. But uh, what happens with Justin.TV is they record everything as it happens – and uh, I think they do it in chunks. I'm not sure. How big are the chunks? Uh, they used to be two hours. I think they're longer. So you can uh, you can go back to last week and get, I think we talked from 11 to 1130 Pacific. So you should be able to on here. I'm told. I've never done this. But go back to our recording of seven days ago and catch it. Let me just, you know, let's, I don't know. Well, I don't see it here. <laughs> it should be here. It's, the, they, they were. Their days in length now? Ah, uh, that's what they changed. They used to do it in chunks, but now, wow. now they do it in bigger lengths. Um, so uh, bigger one of our back. chatters has posted this link. So oh boy.
1: Let me uh Big link.
0: click this. Well
1: We need yeah. to bitly it.
0: It's uh, Justin.tv slash twit slash B slash three oh nine four two four eight oh one. If that if that helps in any way. And uh, I guess it, they said if you go in to this 38 minutes in, is that what you, is that what they said? Something like that. Uh, you will find our conversation. So let's let's jump ahead. Yeah. No, wait a minute. That's 80 the 80 tech guy show. So I don't know if this a few is a weeks or a few months. One of the things Google Analytics will tell you is I don't know, Because you can see everything is recorded. Everything is recorded that we do <laughs> on this network. and I don't know. I don't know. This looks like Saturday, so I'll have to go to a different link. I leave it to
1: you. So it's in, there somewhere. Yeah. Maybe someone will find it. And uh, if you're in the chat room, you've s- got sort it. it out. Uh, sixty-six twenty-eight in. They said, "All right, let me look. Let me look."
0: They th- I'm, I'm clicking the link, and I'm going to go sixty-six twenty-eight in. Sixty-six twenty-eight in. Let's see. Let's see if it worked.
1: Oh yeah, look. Focus point of the internet i mean we all need dns in order to as but we that, know resolve that, that sounds like the
0: regular as, as security so now i thought
1: this was a great uh, occasion would not work by now it. it's in there uh,
0: no they're, they're wrong i don't Which know why way? they said that but that's they're wrong gonna, they're gonna do so it, what so you yeah. need to find is the raw is not a repeat anyway i leave this as an exercise to the viewer <laughs> and i apologize but this is a security <laughs> show and we just really didn't think that you all wanted
1: a show that was half an
0: hour of coffee
1: well actually you and i you know, we establish our our Skype connection and then sort of chat a little bit as as you're pushing buttons and getting monitors and cameras and things arranged. And, Somebody needs and to this,
0: wa- needs to uh, uh, watch live if you care about that we, stuff.
1: And we just sort of stumbled <laughs> into a discussion since I had been I had invested all this all right. uh, recent time and and energy in coming up with like the perfect cup of coffee. I can guarantee I you, had we
0: put that in the show, we would have gotten far more email saying, how dare you? It's a security show. Stop talking about was, coffee.
1: <laughs> among the people who who really expressed an interest, there was one grumbly person. There's and no reason said, to grumble. Oh, my God, don't. We didn't don't, put it in the show. Don't. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm not doing a
0: special just for a half hour of a pre-show. The You know, my advice <laughs> to everyone is... Watch live. That's all I'm going to say. We are working on it. And I think this will be soon. Because I understand that uh, one of the arguments against watching live is if you're not in a a U.S. time zone, it's ridiculous. You can't watch live. You're from Australia, one of our viewers, and he's fast asleep when we're doing the show. But here's what we're going to do in response to that because this is going to kill a couple of birds with one stone. Um, We are – I don't know why it's taking so long. But we're working on a way of just recording the whole day from the moment I start to the moment uh, the last show ends. And then – Flipping it, and the reruns are that day again and again. So you can watch in in your time zone. You just start watching whenever you want. You watch for eight hours. You'll get all new stuff, and then you can go to bed again. (laughs) (laughs) How's that sound? Right now, we don't don't do reruns. We do reruns of the edited show, so you would have never
1: seen that coffee stuff in a rerun. So you'll take the eight hours and then duplicate it eight hours and eight hours yes. to fill up a full 24. Exactly. That's brilliant.
0: That way, yeah, I thought about that a while ago, and it's just hard to implement. I guess we're having difficulty finding something that can record eight hours nonstop. Yeah. I think we have something, but they, my engineers won't let me use it. They hmm. say the world will end. Keith Rollin in Sunnyvale, California, wonders, what's wrong with 2048 Bits? Steve, on Security Now 340, listener Craig indicated he thought that 1,024-bit public keys should be secure enough. Perhaps I imagined this, but it seemed like he didn't like the idea of soon being moved over to 2048. Well, so what? What's wrong with 2048-bit keys? Why not use them, them they're more secure? Ever since I read Cryptonomicon, I've used 4,096-bit keys whenever I could. Am I doing myself a disservice by doing so? Should I strive for some balance between more security and fewer bits? Thanks for a great podcast. I commute 15 seconds. (laughs) That is not a typo. 15 (laughs) seconds every day from my bed to my computer, and I couldn't do it without listening to security now. It takes them a year to listen to one show, but (laughs) (laughs) that's very funny. Thank you. uh, Thank you, Keith. It's a good point.
1: Why not just use all the bits you can? Yes, it's because it, they do not come without some cost, Leo. Um, when we ex- when we double the length from ten twenty four to twenty forty eight, we much more than double the computation required. It's a minimum of five and as much as thirty times more computationally burdensome. To have 20, 2048 bit um, asymmetric keys than ten twenty four, so one of the one of the things that's been sort of holding people back is I mean already as we know people have been leery about the 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 processing overhead of dealing with setting up SSL connections. It's one of it's historically the reason that websites bounced people in to an HTTPS session only while they were logging in and then bounced them back to a non-secure session. The idea, you know, the belief being that it was only during that period of time when they were actually providing their their credentials that there was any need to protect their communications. Now we know, of course, that the token that they were given went to create a session when they were, logging on then that's going to be available in the clear and that's what things like fire sheep were able to grab in order to impersonate people so so we know that we're moving more towards https all the time ssl everywhere i mean that's that seems to be the future because it's going to solve these problems Um, But what's been making people in big data centers nervous is that means every single TCP connection is going to have to do this SSL negotiation. Google's been looking at it because they see this as slowing things down. The good news is that SSL, as it's been more robustly implemented, allows the credential that is once negotiated to be reused. And so that that goes a long way towards solving the problem. And next week, I'm finally going to catch up with uh, my uh, commitments about shows that we're going to do and discuss the SPDY, the so-called Speedy Protocol. I keep getting people asking me both through Twitter and in the mailbag, hey, Steve, you know, what are you going to tell us about Speedy, which is Google's tweak to http specifically to address these sorts of issues. So we're going to uh, we we did the we did the show on tcp and why tcp connections are expensive due to the need to throttle bandwidth and that was sort of a preamble for being able to discuss speedy and what what google has done in order to further improve the the performance of the web. And I'm really happy with this R&D arm that Google has that, that's making this stuff go better. But the you know, bottom line is 2048 bit keys are much more computationally intensive. On the other hand, the, the computing power in our machines is just you know, still going up exponentially. Now we're in you know, multi-cores and multi-chip multi-cores and huge on-chip caches. So I, I don't think it's really going to be a problem. And it's certainly good to have the security.
0: Indeed. Uh, Let's see. Next question. Question four. Is that right? Did I skip three? Where's three? Where'd three go? Here's three. Davy Jones. Oh, by the way, a sad moment. Davy Jones passed away, the lead singer of the Monkees, uh, at the age of 66 today. He had a heart attack. Wow, too young. Too young. Way too young. Wow. But another David Jones, this one in Aurora, Illinois, and presumably still with us, says, Anonymous brings DNS down? So what? Steve, let's say someone does figure out a way to actually bring the root DNS servers down. As we talked about, this was last week's episode. I can't imagine that the major search engine databases don't have the IP of the sites they have indexed in their respective entries. Couldn't Google and Bing simply tweak a line of code? To put the IP addresses in the links in the results page instead of the domain name. Oh, that's interesting. So you do a if you can't figure, remember where a site is, just search for it, and then click the link, and it would go to the IP address. Back in the old web crawler days, there were lots of sites that didn't even have domain names. Then all you would need to know is Google's IP address. Now, you would need that, wouldn't you? And you could still get to all of your favorite sites as long as those sites don't change your IPs during the outage, which I would think would be a pretty low priority project if there's a major attack on DNS going on. Yeah, let's not change the IP address today. Non-web-based internet services such as email or other apps might not have a way around these theoretical problems. I don't know enough about the guts of those services to know. Couldn't the rest of the planet's DNS servers just change a quick setting to ignore all DNS entry expirations till it's over? Am I missing something? That's one of our most popular phrases in almost all the email you get. Am <laughs> I missing something? Thank you so much for the podcast. Loving them since episode one. I have a great, day. long-time listener, spin right evangelist, David Jones, Aurora, Illinois. The city of lights. PS has the vitamin D working for you any updates
1: okay so technically david's right um but you know web crawler days come on um <laughs> We've
0: yeah come a long
1: way baby you now the problem is that a web page doesn't look like it used to look in the web crawler days where you know it was just times roman text Static. pouring down right exactly we know that contemporary web pages are full of other URLs with domain names going back out and causing our browser to load all those resources. You know, for example, I mean, many sites now just don't run without JavaScript, as we know, and the page uh, each individual web page at the top of the web page, typically, sometimes at the bottom, uh, calls out the JavaScript that it needs from the server or from a server maybe even a different server in fact many times it is you'll see you know javascript libraries being pulled for example from google or other locations oh yeah all the time uh, jquery for example some people don't keep their own local copy they just always go get the latest one so the problem is you might put the ip address of the main site you're going to into your browser and you know bring up some skeleton of a page but, boy, I mean, you know, you wouldn't be using the Internet um, in that case. Well, you, you
0: just Images you know. are often from a different server. I think you do that, don't you, on your page? Have a separate image server? For so a time, I did, in, yes. We have a separate MySQL server. Uh, so, I mean, in many cases, yeah, it would just, your page would break.
1: And media stuff is coming. You know, i, I, I have media.grc.com is, is where all of the podcasts, uh, audio is stored and, and video stuff, video. I suppose so, you,
0: you could in your bookmarks, you could put a uh, you could instead of having a URL in your bookmark, you could put an IP address. If you if you thought this was going to happen, was it March 31st was the day?
1: March 31st, the day before uh, April Fool's Day is when. You know, the claim was, although it's been disavowed yeah. by anonymous folks, that you know, nice. the claim was this was going to happen. And, I it, it mean, also to David's point, you know, there is no mechanism for suddenly making all DNS servers stop expiring their records. But that would work too. Right. But the problem is, you know, we're, 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 we have to have some assumptions. and We have to have some foundation. And the founding assumption is we have dns i mean and and so and that and the dns system is diverse and spread across the globe and well wired up and we're increasing the security of it all the time and and i mean it's you know everyone takes the need for dns very seriously and it seems to me that focusing on keeping dns up makes more sense than lots of little tricks to deal with what happens if it goes down. So it certainly would be the case that an individual who was worried about this could start, you know, could like build their own DNS cache, start statically recording the IPs of all the DNS lookups their system does. And if there was ever a problem with like all external DNS servers, just switch over to his own external, his own private cache of of dns names and ips that would work sort of like a a big hosts file uh which is exactly what that was used for once upon a time so you know that that's sort of a way of on the other hand you'd be sort of lonely on the internet because you know you'd (laughs) probably be there all by yourself just be you (laughs) oh and vitamin d uh i you know uh i haven't been sick for the last several years, and I get email from people from time to time pointing out articles on vitamin D. I, it's by some weird coincidence that if I had to have picked one thing to recommend to our listeners, even today, although my research has continued and is continuing for many years since, if I had, if I had to choose one supplement... I would choose vitamin D over everything else. I'm getting mine out
0: right now. I forgot
1: to take it today. And all of the research says, I, I will mention one thing, though, and that is that I finally saw a paper which showed the measured blood level of vitamin D correlated with the amount of international units of vitamin D taken by people per day. And, you know, and, tip, and and so it was a, it was a series of, it was a scatter chart that had a series of vertical lines where the horizontal axis was the amount of vitamin D being taken. So the reason these lines were vertical is that there were, you know, vitamin D was being taken in increments, like a thousand IU, 2000 IU, 5000 IU, 15,000, 20,000, so forth. So, Thus they were vertical lines. But what was what really stood out in my mind was that the the degree of scatter of measured blood levels at any given daily dosage of vitamin D. Some people really don't need any. Right. Some people really need a lot. And and it is a potent hormone if you were to take a hundred thousand IU every day for a few months, that would damage you. You do not want to do that. So, but on the other hand, if apparently if you drank endlessly water every day, that would damage you too. So, I mean, you know, anything in in high excess will hurt you, but the point is the only way to know where you are is next time you get a, you know, your routine physical, just ask your doctor to have your vitamin D levels checked. The good news is since we did the podcast, not in any way because of the podcast, but but the world seems to be waking yes, up to yes. the importance of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. So, you're asking your doctor is not going to have him go, huh? I don't know. No, to, I was I, very I,
0: pleased because after that uh, thing that you did, I did ask my doctor and said, "Yes, of course." It mm-hmm. was it was a, it was a, a simple, easy uh, thing to do, and I was getting blood work done anyway, right? And he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we'll add that to the uh, test." He didn't mind. It yeah. can't be so, a very expensive
1: test. I mean, it's. it's not expensive. And and what I learned was I was really, really low, um, even though my health has historically been very good. But it's, I mean, Leo, just except that I got bad food once or actually twice in a restaurant in the last two years, I haven't been sick a day. And we did hear after the winter following that podcast from many of our listeners who said, wow, this is the first uh, you know, rainy winter season I ever went through that I didn't get sick. So, I mean, it has strong immune benefits, and uh, I can't recommend it enough. But you really need to test because I need to take a lot of it in order right. for my blood to be where I want it to be. Other people, you know, may not need any or or much less.
0: So, I uh, my I got this test on March of uh, last year. I should get another one done because, as you could see, I was at twenty nine, where the standard range is thirty to one hundred. In other words, at the very low end. Of normal, And, uh, I, so I haven't taken D since and I, I agree with you and it's purely anecdotal, but I have been much, uh, healthier since I took it. And, uh, when I, when I forget for more than a few, I think there's a, you build up a level, but after a few weeks yep. I start, I start getting sick again. So I, you know, in fact, I just, I hadn't taken it in a couple of weeks and I'm, so I'm taking some now. Got to, got to take it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was glad that you did that bit. And so, uh, yep. You know, consult your physician, of course. We're not doctors. Yes, exactly. We just play them on the radio. Question number four. Dax Mars visiting Earth via Second Life. (laughs) He says he never updates his computer. Mr. Steve, I've been listening and watching Security Now since the start. Always good info. But I have a question. I never update Windows on my PC. Well, the one I use only for programming. I write shareware, you see. It's a Pentium 3.0. Running XP Pro Service Pack 2, it's probably been four, it's three or four years since I did the updates as of that install. Yeah, I think there's a Service Pack 3 you're missing. Yep, it's uh, it's on my, uh, it is on my wired LAN, but it is never used to go online except to allow the CD ripping software to get CD info once in a rare, rare while. So should I be updating it? My reason for not updating is to keep it uh, stable as a programming PC without things changing all the time. It only has a 10-gigabyte drive, by the way. Of course, that's more than enough space to code on. Of course, I'm not completely crazy, and my two main PCs are 100% up-to-date, run a vast C-monkey with no script and ad-blocking, behind a Linksys WRT54G with DDWRT firmware, and one of your killer long random passwords on the Wi-Fi. So should I update the Pentium 3 or let her be?
1: You know, I'd let her be. I think that if I mean it's been four years, you've never had a problem. You only go on the internet in order to let your uh, CD ripping software go and grab from from the you know CD database the uh, album name and 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 track names. Um, you know, as long as you're not promiscuously web surfing, you know. I mean, and you're also you. By the way, you have SeaMonkey with 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 script blocking. I mean, so. You you certainly want to treat that machine carefully because there's a lot of stuff on there's a lot of stuff we know is on the internet somewhere that could that could get it if you clicked on a link. On the other hand, if you behave yourself, you you know you have your other machines for that kind of work. I'd say, yeah. I mean, I I can understand the notion of leaving it alone. One of the things that really annoys me about Windows is that. Every single one of these little updates, and they're, they're often not so little has the ability to be rolled back. Well, that requires that Windows stores all of this state of the machine before it applies each one. And although the directory is hidden under our um, the main Windows directory, oh my lord, after a few years, that it is so full of stuff. And Microsoft just sort of, you know, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do about it. I would wish they would expire these, you know, the older things after a while. But it does annoy me the degree to which all of this just junk builds up in Windows. And, you know, and it never goes anywhere. You have the ability, of course, to roll all the way back. But I don't think that even is ever going to work for anybody because there are just so many so many um, dependencies and interdependencies among things, so it 's one of the reasons setting up Windows from scratch is a good idea. I would say, as you suggest, Leo, just jumping to service pack three isn 't going to destabilize anything, and you'd get you know you 'd get a bunch of fixes there at once um,
0: but is know, it on it 's on the LAN, and other computers on the LAN are on the network so is it really fair to say it's not on the network just because he never points that computer's browser to a, a web page? It is on the, the Internet, isn't it? It's behind oh, a yeah, router, it, but it's on the Internet.
1: Oh, yeah, it is. And so he definitely has to behave himself. But it's a little bit like you and me who both don't use, a, you know, third-party AV stuff. You know, we're just very careful about where we go and what we do. And, you know, knock on wood, have have – you know, gotten away with it so far. I think
0: it's different, Steve. I hate to argue really? with you twice in one episode. No. <laughs> because, all right, let's presume there's an expo- unpatched exploit on XP. And uh, and that exploit, uh, you know, can be... Now, of course, it would have to get through the router, right? So... It would be him clicking on him going to a web page. There's nothing and, just kind of floating around that would go float through the router to his machine or could be no, on that's another. that's
1: what's so nice. Uh, th- th- that's what's so nice about being behind a router. The it's going to protect it. And Service Pack 2 has its firewall turned on by default, too. Right,
0: right. So, so
1: he would have to explicitly open
0: himself to an exploit using a browser or Correct. some sort of surfing. All right. So, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, dis- I don't disagree with you. I don't. I agree. It is a little different than AV because, uh, you know, you're, uh, an antivirus doesn't protect. Uh, do, if you have an exploit on your system, it doesn't protect you against it necessarily an exploit being taken advantage of.
1: Right. It tries to be watching your email come in. And, in other and words, find we'd be nuts not to patch it. <laughs> Correct. It's one thing not to use an antivirus.
0: It's another thing entirely not to patch your system. If you are going online, right? Right. 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 Omri Amiravdrori was present at uh, the Solve for X event that we've been talking so much about. In fact, Omri uh, has been here in the studio and we're going to have him at some point on uh, one of our um, shows. No kidding.
1: Genetic compiling. Yes. He's one of the speakers
0: at the first ever Google Solve for X event. His talk is online at YouTube. In fact, if you just search search for "solve for x" and "omri," you'll find it. He met, he says, with the spray-on nanoparticle antenna guy, Anthony Sutera, and his fiance during that event. He seems to be a very genuine geek. He brought samples of his material to demonstrate and showed several interesting electrical properties of the material to anyone interested. And yes, he actually did have it in that spray can. <laughs> I am no chemist, so I can't verify his claims, but it's one hell of a complicated hoax if it is one. I'm a big fan of you and Leo, thought you and your listeners, and I'd appreciate how another first-hand report since it's easy to wonder about something so new and surprising. Uh, Omri Amirav Drori is the uh, Ph.D. and founder and CEO of the Genome Compiler Corp., which is interestingly still GCC is the uh, acronym. He he is going to join us on a triangulation to talk about... um, the uh, genomics it's fascinating what he's doing
1: i'm glad he's going to because he did uh he did indicate in his note that uh you know he was available yeah and, uh, no, no, and we've, so that, we've
0: been in touch yeah very good yeah. very good and,
1: uh, and i appreciate i just wanted to, to to say thank you i appreciate having a report from someone who was there and who met anthony and and had a had a chance to spray an antenna on himself <laughs> and and so forth so yeah, we'll just sort of see what happens with that. I don't I don't have any stake in it one way or the other. I thought it was interesting, made a great uh, presentation, certainly. And we'll just keep our eyes open, as we are for other things like supercapacitors. I'm and still waiting
0: for that to happen. Jim Hartz, New Brunswick, New Jersey, says he had his life made easier. I'm a huge fan of security now and Spinrite owner. I just wanted to thank you for something not related to either. I recently was doing a web search for how to disable UPnP. ...on a Windows XP box, and the second result was for none other than GRC.com. Hey, nice SEO, Steve. <laughs> Knowing the site, of course, I clicked that link. Your freeware, Unplug and Pray, was quick and easy. Thank you for making my life a little easier and for all you do for your followers. Keep up the excellent work. That's a free program you offer.
1: Is it? Uh, does it work for all versions of Windows, Unplug and Pray? Uh, the ones that need it. The reason I pulled this, the, What what caught my attention was that I realized how long it has been since I've had to solve one of Microsoft's screw-ups. That's true. Things have changed, haven't they? That's my point exactly yeah, that I yeah. wanted to discuss a little bit is the world really has changed. I mean, we've, we're, it's not like we don't have problems anymore, but they're different problems. And if they've sort of moved, what I was doing for quite a while, the you know, Decombobulator, Unplug and Pray, and, I mean, one thing, you know, Patchwork, one thing after another was Microsoft would have some problem, and I'd quickly do a nice little lightweight piece of, of freeware written in assembly language that, you know, no one could believe how small it was, where it would just come up, they click the button, and it would solve their problem. It would just fix that, whatever it was. And, I mean, that's I, I, one of the reasons I was on your early screensaver shows so many times. And this was happening all the time as I was, you know, producing these things. And that stopped. I mean, mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. that really has stopped. And I think it was, it was them finally turning the firewall on yep. in XP, XP with Service, Service Pack, Pack 2. two. Yep. And the fact that routers have been, have become ubiquitous. You know, there, I mean, once upon a time, people actually plugged. I mean, I just shudder to think of actually plugging a computer directly into my cable modem or into a ADSL connection. I mean, have the idea of there not being this little separate island firewall appliance, which is essentially what a router gives us, as as like the first thing that's going to stop any unsolicited inbound traffic. And we do know that even today, if you took an an XP machine. Like serve at just XP the original gold build and stuck it on the raw internet. It just gets taken over by code red and Nimda and blast MS blast and everything. Is that still
0: is that still the case? I wonder.
1: It's still out there on the internet. Yep. It just it just immediately becomes taken over because there was no firewall and there was no protection and there was all I mean and decom things. There was like you know Microsoft was running services. That people didn't need like unplug and pray or un- 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 like universal plug and play, which were vulnerable. There were mistakes in those services, and they when you went on the internet, they were just wide open and exposed for to exploitation, which is what made it such a, you know, such such, such a the days of the wild west back then. But anyway, Jim's comment made me realize, huh, you know, it it I have I'm not doing that anymore. I'm doing other cool things that i'm quite happy with so I, i'm but yeah i thought it was worth just sort of noting that that the world has changed we you know we're we're that's behind us thank goodness such good news yeah yeah
0: that's one of the reasons we can talk so much about privacy nowadays frankly ed zucker in long beach california demonst- Remember, we used to talk about spam a lot too that's kind of gone away yeah Ed Zucker, or not gone away, we've just found ways to deal with it. Let's put it that way. Ed Zucker in Long Beach, California, demonstrates that Chrome side tabs are well missed. We talked to you last week about the fact that Google had removed them. It was an experiment they turned off. Steve, you're not alone in your love for open web pages and tabs. The bug of the missing side tabs exploded in the Chromium bugs management. And after 108 individual postings by people who were desperate, to get side tabs back, Google was forced to close the topic to further posting. They didn't put the tab back, but they at least said, you can't talk about it anymore. We're not going to talk
1: about this anymore. it anymore. We're done. Um, yeah, I, I have a link there to this so-called bug, you know, report for Chromium. It's not a and bug, this,
0: obviously. It's, it's a complaint about a feature.
1: Yeah, it's like, hey, I, you know, Chromium up or Chrome updated and my tabs are gone. My side tabs are gone. I want them back, and and this thing goes on and on and on. A hundred and eight individual people saying, "Come on, you know, figure this out. You know, give them back to me." Now, the good news is the hundred and ninth posting was from a Chromium person, and what he said was that sorry, they're not coming back. So we're going to shut down this this complaint log because there's no point in continuing but he referred to a technology that they were looking at which would enhance chrome such that it no longer had a rigidly fixed chrome for lack of a better term remember the chrome is the insider web designer web you know web browser jargon for the window dressing all this you know the the so-called chrome of the browser is the, all of the stuff that's not the web page the various buttons and menus and so forth and so what they're talking about is extending the the extension chrome's extension api to allow customization by add-ons that would be powerful enough to allow tabs side tabs and that's you know that's um the kind of thing we've seen in other browsers that have more permissive APIs that do allow more customization of, you know, of the, the browser real estate. So that would be cool. That would mean that users who didn't, who weren't tab addicts, as I and so many other people are, um, people who didn't need those wouldn't be burdened by having Chrome lugging that, that um that technology around, but those of us who absolutely organize our lives around having 57 open tabs uh, would be able to add that to Chrome and then uh, tab ourselves to death.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the developer post says, you know, this really, uh, the bug tracker is where we just, the engineering team discusses bugs. This really isn't <laughs> the appropriate place. You, we suggest we, you go to the Chromium discuss mailing list, a much more appropriate forum. And I have to say I, I, don't, I think that that's probably the right way to handle that, <laughs> um, and we should point out that while Google releases Chrome, that chromium is in fact not a Google project, it's an open source project that Chrome is based on. Correct. so uh, this guy, P Casting, who posted this, and the people who made this decision may or may not work for google i don't it's not known. Um, and I think having a, it's a simple way to add it. just add detachable surfaces or something like that yeah. It.
1: Isn't that great? And you can do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean a, a 108 sounds like a lot, but I'm sure there are, cl- you know, close to 100 million users, so it's not yeah. <laughs> it's a small percent. Brian yeah. Voller in Medford, Oregon wonders about factors and prime collisions. Today I have a question on factors and an unrelated thought on prime number collisions, something we were talking about a couple of weeks back. You mentioned in episode 340 that 512-bit and 768-bit numbers have been factored. So we're always going to move to larger numbers to stay ahead. That's why we're at much larger numbers. When you say that they've been factored, does this mean that someone has decrypted an early test message after many months and years of brute force computation, thus proving the math is correct? Or has someone computed all the products of all primes in the given key space and arranged them in something like a rainbow table? It seems that the former is not all that serious, since all that brute force work is completely useless against any other encrypted message. Even if the time required will steadily decrease as computation power increases, the real problem would be the latter. As decrypting any message would then be as easy as retrieving hashed passwords from an unsalted database with rainbow tables. The only catch I could see with this is that the tables would be so large that only a fraction could be stored on all the hard drives in existence. So just brute forcing would be faster, perhaps, than searching. Can you explain a bit
1: more about what you mean by saying they've been factored? So it's really interesting when RSA, the security company whose conference is ongoing right now, and the source of a lot of our crypto technology uh, from its inventors, um, when they proposed a an asymmetric Crypto, crypto system based on the the difficulty of factoring large numbers, which were composed of of primes. They said, "Okay, we want to make sure these are as hard as we think." So they they formally created a challenge, which they hosted and gave. I think it was a ten thousand dollar cash award for. For factoring um, the so called uh, modulus, which is the the composite of the two primes, breaking it back down into its primes, and they had and so and the contest went on for quite a number of years, and it had a long list of increasingly long products of primes and uh, on their site, which is still available uh, at the r s a lab section of RSA.com, dot um, I think you if you googled something like prime factorization challenge, you can probably get right to it um and um, what happened was the shorter ones got factored, and the the largest composite of two primes that was ever factored was the 768-bit composite. Um, And uh, and I have the text from the discussion of that particular solution. It said a six, to to give people a sense for this, so this is 768 bits. A six-institution research team has successfully factored the RSA 768 challenge number. While the RSA factoring challenge is no longer active, the factoring of RSA 768 represents a major milestone for the community. The factors were found on December 12, 2009 and reported shortly thereafter. The academic paper describing the work can be found at, and then there's a link to a PDF, the factors are, and then it lists these two big, long, you know, three lines of decimal digits is this is they, the two prime numbers. And it says the effort took almost 2,000 2.2 gigahertz Opteron CPU years, according to the submitters, just short of three years of calendar time. Oh, boy. So in oh nine. It took three years for them for this this sixth institution team to crack a single seven hundred and sixty eight bit composite modulus, as it's called, the composite of two of these two primes. No one has ever done it for ten twenty four, and it's not like it's not like a quarter harder because ten twenty four is a quarter longer yeah you know, it's exponentially harder as these numbers get larger and so put that into perspective with 2048 i mean <laughs> it's just it's just not happening which is why what we talked about a couple of weeks ago the discovery that the primes being used were not as random as we assumed they were why that's a big deal because essentially the 2048 bit, and in fact, this was mostly done with with 1024. Even 1024 bit numbers are so hard to factor. Nobody has ever, nobody has ever factored one ever. But the idea that there's this shortcut where you don't have to factor them because you can, you know, provide you, you you can use the Euclidean algorithm to to you know if you happen to have two. Of these moduluses that have a common prime, it'll tell you almost immediately that that's the case. That's like, whoops, that's not a good thing. So that was a real backdoor behind this. But anyway, the, the idea was RSA had this challenge. Uh, moduluses up to 768 were factored. No one has ever been able to factor anything bigger. Which you know gives us a sense for the security and that 768 bit one. It used all the cleverness these guys could come up with. The paper is you know makes your just makes your eyes cross. It's so uh, detailed and the technology they they used. And even so, 2,002.2 gigahertz Opteron CPU years were required, and it took them three calendar years to crack one, and that was 768 bits. So. No one's using that anymore. We're all at 1024 and we're headed to 2048. In fact, you know, all of my new DigiCert keys are 2048 because that's the minimum length that you must use if you want to get an extended validation an EV cert. You have to have 2048 as as the minimum, which everyone expects is going to, you know, keep us safe for a long time.
0: So it's really being prudent. I mean, it's it would take 3 years for a 768-bit key Yes. So it's I mean, just being
1: prudent. Yes, 2009 wasn't that long ago. We yeah. haven't gotten things that much faster. Right. We still haven't had any breakthroughs in factoring. You know, I mean, this is, this is a problem that really smart people have scratched their heads about for a long time. Right.
0: Question nine, Jaco Flintner in Holland wonders about salts and hashes stored in databases. Steve, I've been listening to Security Now for quite a while, and I've got a question. I'm curious about hashes And salts, I'm looking to help a project which stores salts in the database together with the hash of the password. Now, is that a security issue? I understand that this would leak some information about how to generate the hash from the plain text, should the hacker know what method was used, and I assume that that's a bad thing. But exactly how good or bad is this practice? Unique salts give also a bit more strength to the hashes stored in the database, since one rainbow table matching a salt does not corrupt the whole database of passwords thanks for security now, regards yako so he's saying there's a single salt and
1: it's stored with the database is that a is that a mistake yeah no well yeah he's saying that apparently they generate a random salt for each account ah. and so they're storing the salt and the hash I get it. of the account's password or together together and so okay if so what we know is that Assault is some typically binary data, which is appended or prepended to the password, which are then together run through the hash to produce the result, which is stored in the database. The normal way, the reason one's concerned about this is the brute force. That is, you are, you're guessing... If you had access to the database, that would give you the salt and the hash. If you knew what the hashing algorithm was, you would then start putting guess passwords through the process, trying to get the hash to come out. If you could do that, then you would you don't know that you have the password. But because hashes can have collisions, as they're called, but you would know that you had a password which, when combined with the salt and hashed, gave you the result. And that would allow you to impersonate that user, to log in as them into that system. If the if the salt was not available, what's significant is that the salt is binary, yet the, the, the passwords you're guessing are ASCII. And if the salt were not available, if it was stored somewhere else or if it was encrypted or if it was somehow better protected than stored right next to the hash, then it's very likely that no ASCII, no password characters could be put in that would create a collision with the hash. That it would give you the same hash because because you, miss, you may have you would very likely have to put some binary in in order to have it salted with the the binary which is the the salt in order to get the result. Maybe I've made that a little too confusing. I didn't I don't think I described it very well. But the idea being having the salt is critically important for being able to perform a brute force. Without the salt, it's very likely no password on Earth could create a collision because you just may not be able to, because the salt would be binary and the password is ASCII, so it's a much lower, uh, it's a much smaller character set in terms of the bytes. ASCII is, is, you know, is, a, is a much smaller range, very likely that you could never create a collision. So I would say, you know, I mean, it's not crucial, but if you could put the salt somewhere else, that would be a good thing. Hmm. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. We have two more. Are you yeah. ready? Uh, question 10. Keith Rollin in Sunnyvale, California, wondering how is overwritten disk data recovered this is another one of those tinfoil hat things but in order to securely wipe a hard drive, operating systems and third-party utilities offer facilities for overwriting data multiple times i've seen options for overwriting three seven eleven even 35 times the implication here is that someone can still recover previously written data from a disk even if it's only been overwritten a few times my question is how is this done if there are multiple images of a block In a particular physical location on the disk, how does a standard driver know which bits are the current ones? How does a recovery program know which bits are from one generation back as opposed to two generations back? How prevalent is the technology for reading old disk contents? And how many times should we overwrite a block to obliterate old data?
1: And I agree with you, Leo. Um, I would now, I would more, more and more, I would classify this as an urban legend um that is the idea that it is possible to go back multiple generations um the the this 35 times is a result of one uh famous paper on the internet where someone analyzed very old generation drives meaning MFM or RLL drives where where we knew how the data we were putting in was turned into flux reversals because it's the reversals of flux on the drive, which stores the data with contemporary drives. It's amazing how many different stages they go through at least three stages of data manipulation before that is the, the user data is, is transformed in three very different ways before the final flux reversal pattern is generated, meaning that the user has diminishingly little control based on the data they write over what's finally written on the drive. Um, an earlier version of SpinWrite several generations ago, actually a Spinrite 3.1 and 4, I think, did something where I reverse engineered the, were called the index the encoder decoders of all the popular hard drives i i i found them all i reverse engineered them i knew what how they related data to flux reversals and i came up with this it's called the flux synthesizer actually which synthesized patterns based on the drives make and model to do the best job of finding defects and that sucker really worked the problem is it, you just can't do that anymore. In the same way that you cannot deliberately write data to create flux patterns on the disk, that's just—it's gone from all of our of our contemporary drives. Similarly, uh, there's no way to do like worst-case data patterns. They yet existed once; they don't exist anymore. And error correction is so prevalent that it's not clear that that really matters either because error error correction is always there always in use and it's solving problems like you know allowing the us to skip over little defects and and correct for them my feeling is that that two passes of pseudo random data such that such, such that there's no record of what was written is all you absolutely would ever need I would argue that one pass could be reverse engineered, but but not two. And uh, and and even then it would take, uh, you know, I I think, as you said at the top of this, Leo, it's, you know, (laughs) another, you know, another tinfoil hat issue.
0: It it, it all came from a guy named Peter Gutman who gave a speech in 1996.
1: That that was Peter. Yeah.
0: Asserting that this was possible, never demonstrating, never explaining, never showing any real. Evidence, um, and, and even then, it, 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 what work they did required a scanning tunneling microscope <laughs> per bit. It's just not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't, no. 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> and it takes a lot of time, so, you know, but it, it's become, it's one of, there's so many things that are, uh, become uh, revealed truths in technology because we don't understand it very well. And so we just all kind of accept it. And uh, that's one of the revealed truths that you must overwrite
1: 35 times or
0: somebody somewhere could figure it out.
1: Yeah. The next major revision of Spinrite, which is a ways off because I'm going to do a minor one first, but it will incorporate the what I call beyond recall technology. And it will have an extremely good pseudo random number generator because I know how to write those now, having done all this crypto work. And it it will very quickly do a secure wipe of the drive, and also do what it can about the safe area, the protected area, and the relocated sectors, uh, ways of getting into there, too. So so that'll happen. Our last
0: question, ladies and gentlemen, is the revelation of the millennium. I need a gong or something. Ed in Cleveland (laughs) says, I've solved all the world's problems without even trying. Steve, I believe I've come up with a way to solve all the world's problems. I'm contacting you because I know you will be able to confirm if my theory is valid. I will start with the simplest example. The recipe for tacos, when stored as a text file on a computer, is just a string of digits. If you randomly generated digits, you would eventually produce a set of digits that is identical. You'd also produce a lot of noise, along with many variations of the taco recipe. If you never stopped, you would produce every recipe in every language that has ever existed. In fact, I'll point this out, you would produce everything ever, including all of Shakespeare, but let's go on. You could eventually do the same with music. start producing a random set of digits, and you'd eventually end up with Hey Jude by the Beatles. The process will produce the entire Beatles catalog, along with the most beautiful Beatles songs that John and Paul ever dreamed of making. These random sets of digits will even contain a recording of Yellow Submarine with the fifth Beatle, Steve Gibson, on lead vocals.
1: Now, there's a scary
0: thought. (laughs) Among the text, it's true, though. Yeah. The problem is is the word eventually. But anyway, we'll get on to it. Along, among the text documents, sound recordings, and videos that can be produced by randomly generating digits is the cure for cancer, the end of war, the source of unlimited free energy, and everything you can and cannot imagine. I think uh, 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 Douglas Adams wrote about the infinite improbability drive. Ah, I love that, yes. This process could even produce a documentary video of future events, a video of the highlights of my life, including the last breath I take, absolutely Mm. accurately and perfect in every detail. My point is, although it may not be practical, it is possible to produce a digital version of everything that has ever happened in the past and will happen in the future and also to produce things that would never have been invented by man. Do you agree that this is possible? I point you to Steve... The very famous, an infinite number of monkeys typing on an infinite number of typewriters, which was conceived of long before digital
1: technology. <sighs> ah, yes, the lure of digits, Leo.
0: <laughs> it's no different because it's digital.
1: Yeah, I I, I just got a <laughs> kick out of this posting. And um, what it tells us as listeners of this podcast who are interested in things like bit lengths and in crypto and in probabilities all which we we work to understand and deal with, is that Ed, of course, is correct. And here we are looking at the impossibility of finding the 128-bit symmetric key used to encrypt communications. Because, for example, that's what protects SSL. Yes, there's all of the fancy public key, private key, all of that but that just negotiates remember the the symmetric key which is much shorter and we can't we can't try all of those combinations there are too many in only 128 bits and if we look at how few characters that is then we get some idea of the number of bits required to represent one of the Beatles songs and that, sure, you could change a few of the bits here and there, and uh, you know the song wouldn't be uh, drastically different. But when you when you start doing the math and looking at how many combinations of bits there are, uh, it's true that everything that has ever existed is in some pattern of bits. The problem is that so is everything that will never exist. And there's a lot more of that than there is. There's a lot more of the, the junk than there is of the good stuff. The
0: real problem is this term infinity, which somehow implies that it's a number, that it is in the same category as one, two, three, four, and five, that you, if you
1: kept counting long enough, you'd get to infinity. Well, and it's because we deal, we, we humans... We don't get it. Oper- yeah, exactly. <laughs> we operate in a world of how far can we throw this stone? Right. And when will my car run out of gas? And, you know, physical, conceivable, real-world sizes and, and numbers. And right. it's what and I like about ain't this. ain't one of them, by the way. Right. Exactly. What I liked about this is that it reminds us that that combinations of bits – are incredibly powerful. Right. I mean, he's right. Ed is right. All right. of those things are exist as a combination of bits. The other thing this says to me is a, a little bit about entropy, which is is we are highly ordered in our combinations of bits. Computers and the technology we're using. You know, the fact that you and I are communicating in real time, five hundred miles from each other and audio is going back and forth i mean this is this incredibly supreme accomplishment against entropy where think of all the way all the things that could go wrong all of the ways that these bits could be different and nothing would work yet here it is and we're talking to each other it's it's fascinating um but yes the, you know, the world is big, the universe is big, and as you said, Leo, infinity is a very large number. It's a, it's a bigger number than
0: one one really thinks of. It's a lot further than you can throw that stone. And then uh, if, uh, for further research, Zeno's paradox on <laughs> infinitely small numbers. And, uh, you know, there's some who say uh, in string theory that perhaps that thing that he was talking about is actually occurring and that we are existing on one of the many strings of uh, infinite possibilities. And we just happen to uh, occupy one of them. I hope you're enjoying yourself. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's where you can find 16 kilobit versions of this show, which are mostly but not entirely random. Uh, And uh, also, of course, uh, you can get the transcript. You can get uh, lots of free stuff. And the most important thing, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive, maintenance, and recovery utility. you got to have it. If you've got a hard drive, you need Spinrite. Steve will be back, not Wednesday, but Tuesday. I should tell yes. everybody we talked about this. March 7th, next Wednesday, is Apple's iPad 3 announcement day. So we'll be doing MacBreak Weekly that day. We'll start our live coverage at 9.30 a.m. Pacific, 12.30 Eastern.
1: Be still my heart.
0: Yeah, so we're going to flip-flop you and put you in MacBreak Weekly's time, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Tuesday. Eastern, 1900 UTC, on Tuesday, March 6th. So if and you we like...
1: will discuss Speedy, S-P-D-Y, Ooh. finally... What Google has been doing to uh, propose improvements to the most used protocol on the Internet, which is HTTP, which all of our web browsers use. How to make it go more speedy. Awesome. Steve Marino, thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Leo. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Bye-bye.
1: Security Now.